0: find your places. Let's get started. This is another great opportunity that we have. Praise the Lord that we do have opportunities to reach out for the Lord, use to, for Him to use us in His mission. Um, thank you so much. Be praying for us all as we're traveling this week. That'll be a great thing. Today we are finishing up John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 11. And Um, By way of introduction, let me say that we're going to talk about a little bit, if it's possible to say, a little bit more serious subject. Uh, The the subject that we're going to talk about today has to do with our enemy. Uh, It has to do with how he influences people and how we can be aware of that by learning something from the responses that we'll see at the end of this chapter. Uh, We'll get into that in just a second. Let me just encourage you as we are preparing to hear from the Lord in this next hour, um, that you would try your your very best to not hear anything with some preconceived bias. Um, Ask the Lord to help you not to hear something that's not said or not to carry something to some extreme that is not intended, but just to allow God to speak to your heart this morning concerning the things that we're going to look at. Will you do that with me? That'll help you. That'll help you as we get into this. And, and, and so the, the title of today's message, I normally don't just jump right out and give you the title, but it is in your notes. It's the satanic nature of rejecting Christ. And, and the thing that I want to just kind of start off with is this idea that every human being is born With a sinful nature. The Bible is very clear about those things. We received that from our great, great, great grandfather Adam from the original sin as it occurred in the garden. If you went back to Genesis chapter 1, you would find that when God created man, he created man in his God's Own image, but then man, Adam and his wife Eve sin in the garden. In chapter number three, by the time you get to chapter number five, Adam and Eve begin having children, and their first children show up after they have sinned. In Genesis five, the first few verses, what we see is that um, when Adam and Eve have their first children, that those children are not in God's image, but they are in Adam's image, and Adam's image is a fallen. Image. I say that to many of you who have studied the Bible, that's, that's review, but for some of you maybe it's not. And you need to understand that that means every man and woman, boy and girl that's born into this world is born with an, with an image, with a nature that is sinful. We are sinners not just because we do sin, which is true. But we are sinners by our very nature, which means that we can't help but sin until we meet the Lord Jesus Christ anyway, and so that's what our life is all about. So as you come through the study of the Bible, and for those of you that have done this, this will sound familiar to you, uh, the Bible talks about two types of human beings. Either you are what the Bible calls in Adam, or you are in Christ. In fact, the very name Adam, all it really means coming from the Hebrew is it means man. And and so you are either in the first man, which is Adam, or you are in the second man, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are born physically, your first birth places you in Adam with that sinful nature. When you are born again, born of the Spirit, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you are born in Christ. And so that's kind of the story that we see. We've got our old nature and we have a new nature. And if you looked in Colossians chapter 3, it refers to it another way. It talks about how take off, put off, like, like you would take off clothing, put off the old man okay, in his deeds and put on the new Man, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ and righteousness and holiness and all that sort of thing. So I'm just kind of setting the stage here to get you acquainted with what we're dealing with. Every human being is born with a sinful nature, and our only hope of escaping that is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of something in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, if you keep your finger there in John 11, if you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, and the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is all of our testimony of our lives now you'll read it and say well that doesn't sound like me it actually describes each and every human being before they receive the Lord Jesus Christ and so at some point in our life this is a good summary of what how God describes all of our lives before we receive Christ Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1 starts by saying and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were notice by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And the thing that I want to point out to you, because if you continued in Ephesians, you'd see verse 4 starts by saying, but God... Who was rich in mercy, with his great love wherewith he loved us, by grace we are you saved, and all of those kind of wonderful things that follow. This letter is written to Christian people, but it's referring back to that time before they had received the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the characteristics of our life. And it says in John chapter eight and verse forty-four, the Lord Jesus Himself speaking to unsaved religious men, Pharisees, and He says to them in verse forty-four, "Ye, you all that I'm speaking to, you are of your father spiritually, the devil." And so I want you to get this in your mind because we're going to talk about a satanic nature in those that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, when it says that you're of your father the devil, and and I'm making this application to every human being that has yet to receive the Lord Jesus, please don't misunderstand me into thinking that I think everybody's just a devil worshiper that you got those upside-down pentagrams you know, stats, uh, painted on your walls and you're burning candles and having seances and doing whatever it is that those people do. I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you that there is biblically revealed to us a satanic force that is behind any action that would be opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, never are these actions more evident to us than when these actions motivate people to engage in physical violence. And we'll see in this story before we're done. This story is the story on the heels of Jesus Christ's possibly greatest earthly ministry, raising Lazarus from the dead. The reaction of these people is, let's kill Jesus. This initiates the plot to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, it's one thing when people aren't interested in the Lord Jesus and they just quietly walk away. They're disinterested. But it's quite another thing when they plot to kill the opposition. I was in the 9 a.m. prayer session and we prayed and thanked God for the freedoms that we have in this country, to be able to gather together and freely worship him and sing to him and study his word and tell others about him. But there's many places in this world today where that freedom is not given. There's many places in this world today where if you proclaim Jesus as publicly as we are this morning, that they will seek to kill you too. Some places use the word jihad. But, but there have been religious wars in the name of their God, whoever that God might be, all over, the, all over the history of man. And, and that physical reaction that wants to eliminate the enemy is satanic in nature. Now listen, let me just make it clear to you that whether your rejection of Jesus Christ elevates to a level of physical attack and brutality, or whether your rejection of Christ is just very calm and personal and, and just subdued, you are just as lost you end up in the same devil's hell. But the evidence of the work of the devil becomes very clear when people get very, very violent and that sort of thing. And and that's what we're going to see because throughout the history of man, frequently the vehicle used is major organized religion that have taken on crusades to kill the infidels, as they might even say. And so what I want to do today simply is just for us to better understand this phenomenon. I want us to have some clear battle lines drawn in our minds as it relates to our life living in what the Bible calls in Galatians this present evil world. So we're going to jump into this text, and we're going to see some things. And uh, first, we just we just got to have the Lord be the one speak to us. Let's just pause for a second and pray. And Heavenly Father, I do pray for your protection, your guidance, your revelation. I pray, Lord, that as we look into this subject, uh, that it doesn't freak us out. Uh, I pray that this subject would just simply be a confirmation of truth that Uh, Whether we'd thought about it before a lot or a little or maybe not at all would be something that we would see clearly that there is real spiritual warfare that goes on behind the scenes. There are spiritual forces that that are waging war for the souls of men and women all over this planet every single day and that we need to understand that they exist. We need to understand who we are in the light of all of those things. And thank you, Lord, that at the end of the day, uh, we've read the last chapters. We know that you win. We know we're on the winning side. We know how it's going to work out. But in the meantime, uh, it can get a little dicey. And I just pray that as we study this passage of Scripture and the reaction of these Christ rejectors, that you would give us some insight into all people who, for whatever reason they might put forth, are also Christ rejectors. And it's not the individual necessarily that's the enemy, it's the spiritual force behind it. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts this hour in your name. Amen. Well, the first point I have for you is simply the clear revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and last week, we kind of ended on verse 46. I want to back up into that because, again, we came through verse 44 with the actual miracle of raising Lazarus, and there's some reaction to that. And verse 45 starts by saying, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Yay! Verse 46, But some of them who saw all those same things went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees counsel and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. And so we have seen before that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is recorded as doing seven distinct miracles. Each of these miracles are supernatural. That's why we call them miracles. They're not just things that was a cool happening of circumstance. There were things where Jesus demonstrated his absolute power and authority above and beyond the realm of nature. The things that he did were in the the idea of changing water to wine. Uh, In three different instances, he, he heals diseases in ways that have never been done before. He takes food and he multiplies it so thousands of people can eat, and he's able to literally control the elements of nature and weather. But in John chapter 11, the seventh of the seven miracles recorded in John's gospel, I think Jesus Christ saves the best for last. Because taking a man who had been dead and in the grave for four days, the process of decay and decomposition had begun to take place And Jesus shows up and just with a word he calls him out of the grave and Lazarus comes out of the grave and is alive again in the very sight of all the people. Can you imagine having been in Bethany at that graveside when Lazarus comes out of the tomb alive? And and you guys down here remember our verse from last week? What is the verse y'all were going to remember? Lord, he stinketh. Thank you. See, so that's the verse. He would have come out of the grave probably smelling funny. The, the youth are going to get that one. And uh, so that's really, that's, I mean, this is amazing. This is, this is the pinnacle. This is the ultimate. Say what you want about a storm stopping when Jesus says so. Say what you want about him healing somebody who was born blind or lame or whatever the case might be. Say what you want about, you know, this crazy, some might think, magic, changing water to wine or whatever. But raising a guy from the dead? after the people have been mourning for over four days. Nothing like that has ever, ever happened before. And so you have some reactions. In verse 45, you get a bunch of people getting saved. You got a bunch of people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You definitely have the disciples who had been watching this whole process. Their faith is strengthened and increased, right? And you know what else? As we read on, as you'll see in in this story, this miracle of Lazarus being raised It was never denied by anybody. Nobody who was around there would possibly, nobody denied that the miracle took place. Can you imagine denying that the miracle took place? He didn't really raise him from the dead and Lazarus walks up and he's like, hey, what's up? (laughs) I mean, there he is, you know, and everybody knew there he was. And so, I mean, there's no denying the fact the guy was dead and now he's alive and he's over here. He's having a hamburger or whatever, you know, not a pork sandwich. But Jesus Christ and the things that he did again this is these miracles prove who he is. He is God the Son. And that's the purpose of John's writing. It is a clear revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. If we go back to John chapter 1 and verse number 9 it says that was the true light, capital L, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, literally lights every man. He gives us all the clear revelation of who he is. In Romans chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says this in verse number 20 For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. We can see invisible things? How's that? being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. We can understand things about the eternal power and the, and the Trinity, the very being of the Godhead. And it says so that they're without excuse. In other words, I want you to get it clear. God absolutely, he's got this job on his list of job description. One of God's jobs is He is going to make His presence known. He's going to make His person known to every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet throughout all time. Absolutely. That's what He does. He does it in a variety of ways, but He will make it clear who He is so that all of us ultimately, when this physical life is over, are without excuse. None of us can stand before God and say, I had no idea. Because He says that that's what He'll do. Now, the fact that Jesus is who he is, the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the fact that he rules over the realm of all nature is a threat to individuals, to human beings on this earth that have some level of authority themselves. And that's what we're going to see in this story today. People who have positions of power. People who have levels of authority over others typically enjoy that and prefer to not have that authority threatened. They prefer to not have somebody else come in. That's what wars are all about, right? One king has a territory, another king has a territory. I want some of your territory, we're going to fight about it. And, And that's what happens, that's what we see. And so you rarely, throughout history, see people who are very wealthy or people who are very powerful Get saved. I mean, the Lord Jesus said the very thing in Matthew chapter 19. There was a guy who was a rich young ruler. He was wealthy and he was powerful. He ruled over a lot of people. And he ultimately walks away sorrowful because he's not willing to surrender all of his will and all of his power to the lordship of the ultimate power, Jesus Christ. Because you see, the gospel requires that that's exactly what we do. In order to be saved, we have to agree with God that we're no good. We've got nothing good to offer. And people who have achieved some level of prominence frequently have a hard time confessing, yeah, it's all garbage. It's nothing. I give it all to Jesus. But that's what the gospel requires. That's what we've got to do. And so when you submit to God, then he'll come in and change your life. But you literally say, You're the boss, you're the authority, I'm the servant, I'm here for you. That's what salvation is. And that's, my friends, the place where the battle begins. And that's really our story. I'm going to read the whole rest of the story now as we get into this second point. So let's start in verse number 48. So they came in and they said, what are we going to do? Okay, he does a lot of miracles. Verse 48, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto him, "You know nothing at all, nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not." And this spake he not of himself, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment, That if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So, what we have is we have this sinister plot. We have this plot to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And even then, when that was happening and it wasn't quite his time yet, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. From this point forward, Jesus shows himself openly to the people no more. He just spends some time with his disciples, getting them ready, because he knows the Passover is only about a week away. And ultimately, he's going to give his life. The disciples don't understand that, but Jesus understands that. So he kind of goes off into hiding. The Pharisees and the chief priests are saying, we've got to find this guy. We've got to eliminate this guy. The Passover's coming. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. All points bulletin. Everybody look out for Jesus. If you find him, you've got to tell us. Snitch alert. You've got to tell us because we're going to kill him. And uh, that's the situation. That's what we see. This is nothing new. Back in John chapter, nine, uh, John chapter 1, excuse me, we looked at verse number 9. He's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. It says in verse number 11, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's exactly what happened here. He came unto his own, the Jewish people of that time, and they rejected him. You know what? These all rejected him too. You start in verse number 46 and you work their way down. You know what? Even today, Jesus Christ is offered to each and every one of us. And he came for us. And people still reject him. It's amazing to me that regardless of the facts, again, it's a miracle. They acknowledge the miracle, right? They accept the fact that there was a bona fide supernatural event at the hands of this man that took place. They don't deny the miracle. They deny the Christ who did the miracle. That's even worse. That's crazy. But that's what they did. And so they they can't deny the miracle but they've just decided already they're not interested in Jesus' authority because, you know what, we got our own authority. We got our own gig going on here and it's pretty smooth. And I don't want to ruin my kingdom for your kingdom. I like my kingdom. I like it just fine. And so, man who just doesn't want to believe something, isn't going to believe anything. Doesn't matter what the facts are. I put it in your notes this way. A man convinced against his will remains unconvinced still uh, listen if you're trying to share Jesus Christ with somebody and and you're just overwhelmed with the love of God like we sang earlier and, and you're just sure about how God can help them and, and, he, and he and all of the great things that the gospel offers and, and people just don't respond and, and you think man if I could just talk to him more I could just argue with him more I could convince him you can't argue anybody into heaven If they just don't want to receive it, they just don't want to receive it. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter that it's very clear that we're all sinners and on our way to hell and Jesus is the only way. It doesn't matter if that's as clear as can be. If a man just doesn't want to receive it, he's just not going to. And so there you have it. You have the chief priests and and you have the Pharisees and and they understand the miracles valid and and their response to all of that is, I mean, they saw the supernatural act of the very creator of the universe and what's their response? Kill him. Kill him. I'm reminded of Proverbs 26 and verse 12 where it says this. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There's more hope of a fool than of him or in first corinthians 1 and verse 20 it says where's the wise where's the scribe where's the disputer of this world hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world and so god says that all of the thoughts and, and the wisdom of the educated that think that they've got something going on if it runs in opposition to the lord jesus christ god says it's foolish and the people who buy into that stuff he says are fools the problem is is that when people make decisions like that, they're not judging rationally. They're judging emotionally. That's what they're doing. Uh, Jeremiah 17 verse nine says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." Who can know it? Remember back in Ephesians chapter two? We are all, by nature, children of wrath." We have it within us. We can't help it. And when people are confronted with the fact that you're sinful, that you have to surrender all of the control of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there's something in us that even though it makes sense, people will say, out of emotion, I, I'm, I'm not interested. I, I don't want it. And what I want you to understand is when we get involved in this thing, and, and again, this this second point, I didn't mention the title, but it was in your notes, The Depraved Nature Of unregenerate man, we we are just depraved. We are sinful at the core. It's our nature. It's who we are. Children of wrath. As as we come through the story, we're going to see two different ways that that's played out. And the first one is a political nature. There's a political version of that. the The Sanhedrin are who we're talking about, and that that word doesn't appear here, but that's who these chief priests and Pharisees really are. They're the Sanhedrin, and they're the political rulers of the Jews. Now they're under the umbrella of Rome. Okay, but they're kind of in charge of that group of Jews in this region. And so what they're doing is they they kind of serve as the Supreme Court. Okay, they have a lot of power among those people. It's made up of 70 different men. Typically, they would be chief priests and elders and teachers of the law. And there were 70 different men. And that this Supreme Court, this Sanhedrin, is presided over by the high priest, who we'll see in a minute, Caiaphas. But the high priest who would be the 71st of this group of this supreme court Uh, these are the people who would be making up this count these are the people who are meeting to decide what are we going to do he's got all these miracles everybody's going to start following him we can't deny that lazarus is still here they're all going to follow him what are we going to do the miracles are undeniable people believing in jesus let me tell you the sanhedrin doesn't care if people believe in jesus What the Sanhedrin cares about is if the people begin in mass to follow Jesus, Rome is going to see this great swelling of an uprising. And when Rome begins to see this great swelling of an uprising, then they will come and it says, take away our place and our nation. And see, the whole thing is we've kind of got our thing going on. We're in charge of this group. Jesus is going to mess up our authority our power and they said we can't have that the devil don't care what you believe the devil don't care what you think and do as long as you don't develop some sort of momentum as long as you don't get some revival going see you start messing with our kingdom and people are going to try and stop you and that's what's going on I mean why would they do that I mean, you think about this. These people were schooled in the best schools of their day in the law of Moses. And the Old Testament, they know full well that Messiah will come one day and when He does, He will be the God-man and all the details of His life, but these people just refuse. They're not thinking rationally. They refuse to recognize that this is the coolest time in history to be alive. God came in human flesh and He's demonstrating His majesty and power right before our very eyes. This is our chance to get in on what has been prophesied for thousands of years, but instead they say we'll kill him. We're going to kill him. You know, today in our world that we live in, it's not a whole lot different because we have the same nature. And the standard of judgment today is relativism. It's relativism. In other words, we talk about situational ethics that there's no absolutes, that what's good for you is not necessarily good for me and you know, don't judge me and this is okay for me, especially in the area of morality. People today don't typically judge anymore what's right and what's wrong. And again, we're, we're talking on a political level here. We're talking about the Sanhedrin. They don't care if Jesus is guilty or innocent. They're not trying to judge what is right and what is wrong. They are judging based on how it affects me. And that's what people do today right? Our politics are no different than their politics, right? I mean, when we make issues on the ballot and we say we are going to legalize marijuana, we're going to legalize abortion, we're going to legalize homosexual marriage, We don't care as a political nation of leaders. They don't care about what's right and what's wrong. They've already decided that that stuff doesn't matter. We are going to relativistically judge based on how it affects me. If I like twisting that thing up and smoking me one, I'm going to vote yes for that thing. Or if I want to get rid of my baby because it's a hassle for me, I'm going to vote yes for a woman's right. I mean, that's the way people vote. That's the way governments lead. It's all relative. It's based on how it affects me because it's our depraved, sinful human nature to judge emotionally, not, not rationally, based on how it affects us not what's right. And back then, we saw that that was very evident in the realm of politics. Why is that? Well, because in politics, you control the largest amounts of people. Your authority is elevated. The decisions you make affect multitudes and multitudes of other people. And so we see that played out as these people are rejecting the clear revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The other nature to the rebellion is religious. It's religious. I want you to understand something because we're going to look at the person of Caiaphas as the high priest, but these people that are plotting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, don't kid yourself. These are bloody killers. These are murderers. And at the same time, they are clean living Pork-abstaining, Sabbath-keeping children of Abraham. That's who they are. They would have been people who would have had the highest respect in their society. And behind the scenes, they're plotting the most brutal, unjust murder of all history. Caiaphas, the high priest, he's wicked. He's evil. He's a fake. There's nothing about him that's right. There's nothing about him that's godly. He is the high priest. He holds the position to be the spokesman before the people for God. And it's interesting because in a minute we're going to look at that verse where he really prophesies something true, but not because he's trying to get in line with Jesus. No, no, no. He's got very other different motives. But Caiaphas, you could read about Caiaphas if you want to. He was... Uh, the one who little, few chapters down, you know, he questions Jesus during his trial. Uh, Caiaphas is the one who, in Acts chapter four, when uh, Peter and John go into the temple and they heal the guy who's begging there, and they, you know, silver and gold have we none, but what we, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and and then they're questioned in front of Caiaphas. Uh, I mean, Caiaphas is the guy who, over and over again, is witness to miracle-working power of God, and just decides, I don't care about any of that stuff. All I care about is how does it affect me? How does it affect us? How does it affect my kingdom and my power? And so the Sanhedrin gets together and they're like, what do we? What are we going to do with this Jesus? It doesn't fit into our box. I don't know what to do with him. And Caiaphas, he gets a little nasty. He gets a little uh, sarcastic. He gets a little insulting. And he says, you know nothing at all. You don't even know what you're talking about. Are you kidding me? It doesn't matter to me if Jesus is innocent or guilty. All that matters is is that we preserve our position over this people. Because the real issue with unregenerate man, it's always self-preservation. It's always self-preservation. Listen, Caiaphas makes this great statement okay he says it's expedient notice what he says for us it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not now yes that was prophetic yes God did that yes that was he didn't speak that of himself God put those words in his mouth but when Caiaphas said those words don't kid yourself into thinking that he was a secret Jesus follower like Nicodemus he was not Don't kid yourself into thinking that he said that in order to try and sway the people to surrender their hearts to Jesus. Absolutely not. Caiaphas said that in this context. Are you kidding me? You guys are debating like what should you do? Jesus shows up and threatens our authority. Don't you recognize that the ends justify the means? Don't you recognize that it is expedient for us? We're going to kill this dude so that we can preserve our nation. But when he said that, he was dead wrong because it wasn't that many years later, it wasn't 40 years later that, yes, they killed Jesus and, of course, he rose again and we know the story, but they did put him to death and 40 years later in 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman army comes through and absolutely levels Jerusalem and Israel ceases to be a nation. That didn't work. That plan didn't work. But at the same time, There was a spiritual prophetic nature to what he said because yes indeed it is friends expedient for all of us that Jesus Christ dies so that he can preserve life in all of us. And the fact that he said that Interest It's amazing to me the sovereignty of God, the fact that he said that God put those words in the mouth of the man who was the high priest and his intention was nothing but satanic and evil. And yet the very words are prophetic. The very words are the words that is the message that the people absolutely need to get. And that's what God does all the time. You see, God can use evil, wicked people To proclaim his truth Uh, he can use anybody he wants to if you went back to numbers chapter 22 and there's a story of a prophet named Balaam Balaam was an evil man and God used him to put forth his word the way he needed to in fact if you remember the story Balaam had a donkey (laughs) that God spoke through to to communicate his message and if he can use the donkey just saying thank you for not needing me to say it proverbs 19:21. there are many devices in a man's heart nevertheless the counsel of the lord that shall stand that shall stand you see here's a problem with self-preservation the problem with self-preservation it just doesn't work mark chapter 8 and verse 35 for whosoever shall save his life will lose his life shall Excuse me, let me start again. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Because the gospel requires the second half of that verse. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. In other words, you want to try and hang on tight to everything you've got in life so that you won't lose it? You're going to lose it. It doesn't work. The only way up is down. (laughs) The only way up is down. You have to surrender it all and fall at the feet of your Lord and Savior and admit who you really are in order to get the glory in order to be a part of that that's the only way and that's what he calls for and you sit there and you think man those guys were evil those guys were awful they were vile they were terrible yes they absolutely were but i gotta remind you friends even christians today come up with religious reasons to reject jesus christ I mean, Christian people who might have surrendered their heart to him in salvation yet refuse to serve Jesus in their daily life come up with their own version of good, godly, religious reasons why. And so they say, well, man, I'm just so busy working. I mean, the Bible does say say if a man doesn't provide for his own, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. Or they say, wow, I mean, I've just i I've spent so much time just, just with my family. And, and doesn't the Bible talk about how family really is more important than church and other things? I mean, it's the very first ministry God's given us. I mean, I've got to take care of my family and my kids, right? Of course, you have to do all those things. But can I just remind you, God did not give you that family. And God did not give you that job so that you would ignore him so that you would cast him aside and not spend any time with him or for him and serve him and walk with him and love him and bring others to him? Don't you realize, friends, you need to really be careful because our God who we love and serve, the Bible says, is a jealous God. I will have no other gods before me. And if you have surrendered your heart to me as my child, it's my duty as God to raise you up as a good parent would raise up a child. And if you are constantly putting other things between me and you, I have the ability to remove that thing. Think about that for a while. And I'm not trying to judge everybody who's gone through a tragedy or everybody who's lost a job. Not at all. There's there's maybe hundreds of reasons why things happen. I just want you to consider the fact that God is a jealous God. And if your idol that is between you and him is some excuse, religious or otherwise, he might just remove it. So you fall down on your face and you're like, I got nothing else. Oh, God. And he's like, well, that's really all I wanted. (laughs) That's all I wanted. Just some love and devotion. Just keep me in my rightful place. That's all. Listen, friends, don't kid yourself. The same sinful wicked, evil, human, fallen nature that was in these guys is in every single one of us. It's in every single one of us. We might dress it up a little nicer. We may package it a little cleaner, but it's no different. And this is the end. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. It's about a week before his crucifixion. And the last thing I want to draw your attention to is the third point. Because we've seen the story. We've seen how God revealed himself clearly and we've seen how man has rejected him ridiculously. I'm going to talk a little bit about the enemy, the real enemy. The -the behind-the-scenes force for all this stuff is the devil. And you know what? There's always going to be opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just go to the bank. Just count on it. Listen, you can't stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and expect this world system Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The spirit that now worketh in all the children of disobedience. The devil is the force behind your fleshly nature doing bad things. The devil is the force behind this world system that has charted a course that is going 180 degrees in the wrong direction. The devil is the enemy. He's the declared enemy of God. And what we're going to see is that the two primary ways that he's going to manifest his power and opposition to Jesus and anybody who stands for him are going to be the very ways that we saw it be manifest in this story. The first thing I want you to see is that the the Bible itself has a particular theme, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the theme of the Bible is authority. The theme of the Bible is, is, is about power. The theme of the Bible is all about this question, who's in charge? Sometimes it's been referred to that the theme of the Bible is about a king or about a kingdom. So who's in charge? Is it God or is it the devil? Uh, In our personal lives, you can ask, who's in charge? Am I going to surrender the the throne of my heart and my life to Jesus? Or am I going to sit proudly on my own throne and say, I'm in charge of my life. I'm the the captain of my own fate. See, it's always about authority. That's that's really what the Bible is all about. See, when God first created all things, among the things that were there were the heavenly host. Before we got into the seven days of creation that we read in Genesis chapter 1, He created who is now the devil. It was at that time an anointed cherub. It was one of the heavenly uh, beings called Lucifer. And in Isaiah chapter 14, I want us to look together in Isaiah, if you want to look there with me in your Bibles. In Isaiah chapter 14, it tells the story of Lucifer and his sin and his fall, and it's very telling because when we read, starting in verse number 12, it says this, "'How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning?' How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, notice what he says in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. the sides of the pit and so lucifer swells up with pride and arrogance and says this is a pretty cool thing god's got going on and even though i'm i mean i'm right underneath the top that's not enough i got to be on top and he says i'm putting my throne above the throne of god i'm going to be the god i'm going to be the one that everybody worships and so that when Jesus is tempted of the wilderness of the devil, that's when one of the things that he tempts him with. And he says, just fall down and worship me. Because that's all the devil's ever wanted from the very beginning. His desire is for power, for control, for his kingdom, not God's kingdom. And so his judgment was to be cast down. It says you'll be brought down to hell. Now, if you studied the Bible, and we don't need to do it today, but Satan is cast out or cast down Three different times throughout the scriptures. Here in Isaiah, he's cast down out of the third heaven. Ultimately, during the time of the tribulation, he will be cast down to the earth in Revelation chapter 12. And then ultimately in Revelation chapter 20, he will be cast into the lake of fire. And that'll be at the final judgment at the great white throne. And so there are these different levels that he's getting beat down and cast down. But during this time in which we live now, he has a mission. And that is to have as much authority, control, power as he possibly can to deceive as many of you as he possibly can to take with him to ultimately end up in that lake of fire. That's his mission. That's what he does. And the way that he's going to do it is he's going to work in the realms that we just saw in our story. The first one is politics. We see this all through the Scripture you got to get this. you got to understand this. And again, don't run out of here saying something we didn't say and don't run out of here taking it to a crazy extreme that you don't need to take it to. Just ask God to give you the wisdom to understand that there are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes of the facade of the daily physical life. Don't run out of here thinking immediately just you know, take your favorite political jab at somebody or some groups of bodies. Just understand there is always, I don't care who's in office, there is always a level of, of wickedness that is controlling the physical kingdoms of this earth in this time of history in which we live. It's just a Bible fact. I referred to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil taketh him, Jesus, up to an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Jesus, when he answers, he doesn't say, what do you mean you'll give them to me? They're not yours. They're mine. No, he does not say that. Why? Because the course of this world and this time of history and where we're at is indeed controlled by the devil. And actually, in that time of history, when Jesus was on the earth, the devil had allowed to him the control of the kingdoms of this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Holy Spirit refers to him as the God of this world. The God of this world says, In whom the God, small g, of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, Should shine unto them. And so, for now in history, Satan is the small g God ruler of this world system. You got to get that. You gotta get that. Now it's gonna come to an end at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Things will change. And in Revelation 11, verse 15, this is the return of the Lord. And it says, And the seventh angel sounded. There was a great, there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And that will be the day when the kingdoms of this world ultimately are delivered to be the kingdoms of Of our God, but today they are not. Do not be deceived. They are not. It is the realm of a spiritual force that is anti Christ. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. He works in politics, and maybe not nearly as much as he works in the next one, and that's religion. And that's religion. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, we have seven letters that Jesus Christ writes to seven churches. Among them, we learn a lot of cool things, but I want to point out verse number 9 of Revelation chapter 2, where he's writing to this church, and he says that they are the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue is the Jewish version of what we understand to be church, right? It's the religious place where they would gather to worship Jehovah God. And he says it's the synagogue of Satan. You go a little further down in that chapter in verse number 13, again written to a church. He says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Satan had a seat in the church. And everybody's starting to do this now. Because when you start talking about God and the devil, when you start talking about spiritual eternity and influence, you got to know that the enemy of spirits is going to have his place to try and whisper in your ear something that ultimately is contrary to the will of God. Something that ultimately will cause you to do anything but surrender the control of your heart and your life to the only one who deserves it, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. If you've never seen this before, this will change your life. He says for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works." See, Satan can make himself look pretty darn good. And he can say just enough of the Bible to get you to believe that it's okay but never give you the whole story so that ultimately your conclusion is just a little bit skewed. People that seek after God, that get involved in organized religion and they sit underneath somebody who teaches them something, they don't take the time to study it, they don't pray about it themselves, he looks like a good guy, he went to school, I didn't, I'll just believe him. And they listen to what he says and they buy it hook, line, and sinker and the devil's like, that's all I ever needed. They transform themselves. He, do you see that the devil has ministers? And they look like ministers of righteousness. Do you understand that there exists the presence of a wicked devil in the midst of religious services where people might even be naming the name of Jesus and singing beautiful songs? Don't go out of here and go crazy. I'm telling you, just think about the reality that there is a spiritual warfare, and if we don't learn anything else from the end of John chapter eleven, I can't help but think God has given us some insight into say, you know what, guys, just listen. You love me. You want to listen to me. You want you want to pay attention. God Almighty chose the words to record in that book so you could have it. I, I can't help but say, be careful <laughs> around organized religion, especially organized religion that is led by a high priest. Especially organized religion that is led by a high priest that has very close connections to world politics. Which, by the way, if your mind is going to any particular world religion, you could fill in the blank with a lot of world religions, not particularly just one. There's a lot. And at the end of the day, these, these are ways that the devil has to control literally billions of, of people on planet Earth today. Because the real power behind the political front is frequently religious. It's frequently religious. I'm going to draw your attention to one last passage of Scripture. Please go to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to wrap it up with this. Because you need to understand something about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, the more you get into this Bible, the more you're going to understand how this stuff plays out. And in Matthew chapter 10 we learn a truth that runs counterintuitive sometimes to the way we think. We think Jesus Christ came to make us all love each other and be unified, and and there's a sense in which that's true among those of us who have already believed in Him, but in the greater world of people who don't believe in Him, because no matter what happens, there's going to be opposition, remember? Jesus Christ understands that His very presence divides people. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse number 34 where Jesus himself speaking says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That explains a lot. Just saying. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's not referring to the in law Well, maybe. He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus Christ, very clearly, <laughs> as it was in John chapter 11, some people believed, a lot of them didn't. Just as it is this morning, There's some of you here that aren't sure if your life ended today, you'd have a home in heaven. And some of you understand today's the day. Now's the time. You need to surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus right now. And some of you just might do that. But there might be others of you that will say, I don't care. No thanks. And you're not going to go kill nobody. But you're just quietly choose. No thank you. I, I like my kingdom. I'm doing just fine. Leave me alone. Have it your way. I'm just revealing to you what God's trying to tell us. If you're here today and and you understand who Jesus is and you truly have given your heart to serve him and you love him with all your heart and you want nothing more than for him to be glorified, let me just tell you as a result of a message like this today, have courage, do not fear, take a stand. I'm going to tell you something. For 21 years of my life that this world gave me nothing but set me on a course straight for hell. This world gave nothing to me that was worth anything. I owe this world nothing. I live for Jesus Christ. I don't care what this world has to offer. It does not interest me. I am not going back. I am not joining forces with them. I am not trying to please them. My life stands with Jesus at variance against those who don't. And that's the way it's going to be. I have decided that's the way it's going to be. Don't quit, don't turn around. Don't be afraid. Don't turn tail and run. First John chapter 2 and verse number 19 says this they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. How could you possibly say? that you've surrendered your heart to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has taken your feet off those hot burning coals of hell and placed you in glory and given you new life and yet you say thank you and you turn back around and live your life just like every other lost guy in this society? How could you? Jesus Christ saved you from hell. He saved you out of this world system and you have no allegiance to them. By the way, they have no allegiance to you. This world has no use for you, Christian. Just know it. You try and go back into this world, you're going to be the most miserable person on the planet. Lost people get along fine with this world. Christians don't get along very good with the world. I'm just telling you. They'll chew you up and spit you out as much as anybody else and not even say they're sorry. James chapter 4 makes it very clear. Verse number 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And in Luke sixteen fifteen, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men, it says, is an abomination in the sight of God. Today's the day, guys. We draw the line in the sand and you pick. I'm either, I'm either standing with Jesus, which means I'm standing against the world, or I'm going to go ahead and just stand with the world which means you're standing against Jesus. That's the only way it works. A lot of you, you think you're doing this. You think you've got just enough of Jesus to keep you out of hell, but you love that world, man. You can't let go of that world. And you think that somehow you're, in the, you're just in the middle. You're not the super Christian, and you're not the evil, vile guy either. God says, really, there is no middle. You're either with me or you're against me. And that's all there is. And it's got to bring you to a response. The very presence of Jesus Christ requires a response. And that's what I'm going to give you the chance to do right now, to make up your mind and to make a response. And let me just tell you something. If in your heart you think, I don't know, I mean, that's interesting. I'm not ready to make a decision today. I'm not saying no I'm just saying not now. That's okay, and and we respect that. Take time, ask questions. We want to help you, but understand this. Just understand this. Do not be deceived. If you walk out of here and God is working on your heart and you just say, I don't know, I'm a little timid, not now, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, I hope so, I'll get around to it, I promise. Not now. Not now means no. It means no for now. And God forbid you walk out of here and something terrible happens and you don't ever make it back. Your life ends. Some tragedy happens. Some accident on the road. Who knows? Just know, not now, is no. So let's pray together.